1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello there, this is Eat Sleep Work Pete. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. Hello, this is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. Now, today's episode is a standalone. It's not really about making work better. It's just a fascinating conversation with an interesting guy. I chatted to Dave Trott who's sort of a, a legend of the creative business in advertising. I chatted to him last week. It's The audio is not the best quality ever. Forgive me on that. We tried to record it off the desk and couldn't. So we used a tape player that was, that was situated near the stage. You're going to get a decent quality audio, but not amazing. And it's not a talk about work culture. So on those grounds, I give you a pass if you don't want to connect with it. However, you're missing an entertaining and stimulating chat with a very famous legend of creativity. Dave Trott's a creative director, copywriter, author. He's published a series of best-selling books, most recent of which is called Creative Blindness. Along the way, a few years ago, he was awarded the d Presence Award for Lifetime Achievement in Advertising. Just um, a man of held in the highest regard by his peers. Along the way, he's created... Advertising that really is sort of timeless and renowned. Some of the most famous campaigns ever for brands like Cadbury's Flake, Cadbury's Cream Eggs, Toshiba's Hello Tosh Got a Toshiba that people of a certain age will remember. Dozens and dozens of internationally acclaimed adverts. Latterly, the last few years, it's been on Twitter and with his books that has earned him a new audience. His books... Books like Creative Mischief, Predatory Thinking, One Plus One Is Three, and his new book, Creative Blindness, have won new audiences and new acclaim, and they're just full of incredible stories, some of which you're going to hear today. So caveat, it's not a discussion about work culture. In fact, to some extent, Davis espouses a long hours and uh, sort of burnout culture that I'm not always a big fan of, but it's always fascinating to hear someone who's obsessive about creativity and about doing new and original things and hearing firsthand from him. And if you stick around to the end, you'll hear the funniest story you'll hear on a podcast this year. Here's a conversation at the IAB Leadership Summit last week with Dave Trot. (laughs) (laughs) Dave. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so a little bit while you're away uh, we've, You're a day into a conference here And uh, the leadership conference There's been no mention of creativity yet I wonder if you could sort of give us your perspective On what you think the state of modern creativity is uh, Well what you got is it's, um, it's
0: like perfume You spray it on to cover up a bad smell Everybody says they're creative, nobody is. You start your checklist, you tick it on your website, you say we're a creative, whatever it is, uh, you're nowhere near creative. So saw a guy the other day described himself as a creative strategist. What that means is he's a planner, and he's ashamed to call himself a planner, so he calls himself a strategist, but he doesn't want you to think he's just a strategist, so he calls himself a creative strategist. Creative is real dead simple. Steve Jobs, but Steve Jobs is one of the most creative people there ever was. And um, Steve Jobes said, why would you want to join a Navy when you could be a pirate?
1: And you're saying Jobes, not Jobs.
0: Yeah. When, when, when I first heard of him, you used to pronounce it Jobs. Okay. Now people call it Jobs. But I don't know. I suppose in Scotland, you would still better call it Jobs.
1: Because I, I, I saw you quoted Bill Burnham back, is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah. And he said that creativity is the last unfair advantage we're allowed to.
0: We're legally in. legally allowed to take okay. over the competition. So,
1: so so to some extent, you know, if, if we're sitting there and what would creativity look like then that we're not doing now? Well that's do you mean specifically ad copy creative?
0: And I know you'll know this. Uh, you've been the victim of this, is uh, uh, what what real creativity is about is what Job said is why would you want to be a, why would you want to join a navy when you could be a pirate? If you don't enjoy getting into trouble, if you don't want to break the rules, if you if you just want to be a good boy and progress gradually and do what you're allowed to do, that's not creativity. It might well make you a lot of money. You might well be successful. You'd be Bill Gates instead of Steve Jobs, but you'd still be a good guy. But you won't. Don't confuse that with creativity. Don't call it creativity. Creativity is breaking the rules. I was talking to a lot of them. Um, Indian people a couple thousand Indian people about it my wife's Chinese and I talk to her about it a lot she's an art director Uh, the um, Asians struggle with what we think of creativity because it's really difficult for them to be disobedient so that's an education thing that's all
1: well it's
0: a cultural thing it's filial piety it's from Confucius on down Uh, you want to get good marks from your teachers, you want your your parents to to love you, you want to be proud of of you, proud of everything you do. Whereas in America or in England, it's fine to get into trouble, to be disobedient, to be naughty, to be... That's kind of creative. Now, because we shun any kind of... We're now scared stiff. Immediately you get in trouble for anything now, you pull it and issue an apology. You don't revel in the trouble you get, in the controversy and enjoy it and realise that creates more more noise more free media every time someone talks about it it's a free OTS it's media you haven't paid for I was taught in New York and the whole point was you weren't any good one of my heroes Ed McCabe he always said I'm constantly in trouble and I think that's proof of my worth <laughs> and it's exactly the opposite now now we're all supposed to now this generation is like old people what they want to do is not get in trouble well, that's something to aspire to, isn't it? Let's all be bank managers. What, you, what was the point in you're going to call yourself creative? Where, where's the creativity in that? I can get a computer to do that. I can get a computer to not get in trouble. Oh, yeah. To not break the rules.
1: And, and you were talking just before when we were in here, you were talking about Jeff Ma from Alibaba. Yeah. And, and what you just said there seemed to channel what Jeff Ma was saying. So do you want to explain yeah. what Jeff Ma was saying?
0: Jack Mar, don't if Jack you you know. Marr. I assume you you know Alibaba Jack Ma uh, one of the richest guys in the world but one of the biggest things in the world Uh, this is more your area than mine Jack Ma and and I was reading about it he's he's just left there and he's moved into education because he says the big problem at the moment is what we are teaching our children is what computers will always be better at and computers uh, AI is always going to beat us at those things, and then we are teaching our children that. Uh, and Jonathan Haight, I think it was, the behavioral economics guy, <coughs> said, an Harvard study I was reading, they said, what you have to know about AI is the, the hard things are easy, but the easy things are hard. So they can learn, when things like complicated games of chess, they can learn that, and they'll always beat us at that, because they'll always be faster. And as long as we study that, we will lose. So what we need to be studying is the things that that can never do, which is the things we learn before we're five years old when we're programming our minds to be intuitive, to be creative uh, and that's what Jack Ma has now gone to study and hopefully to change education towards. And if you you know the Ken Robinson talk on TED, Mm. that's much more about that kind of thing.
1: There's an interesting thing there, isn't there, that um, what we seem to be setting our brains up to do more of, being busy, being focused, Mm. sort of uh, trying to sort of channel concentration. Um, seems actually when you look into the, the science of how our brains work, also to over scheduling ourselves seems to be at the expense of thinking of ideas. I saw a sort of brilliant thing. I was looking at neuroscience and it was, it was sort of categorising the three systems in the brain. and the, the main system in the brain is called the executive attention network, sort of focusing on stuff. Second system in the brain is the salience network, it's sort of running background prediction to what goes on in here. And then the third system in the brain is, is called the default mode or the, uh, the default network. And it's sort of where you daydream. You know, a lot of people say, someone said to me, I get my best ideas when I am walking the dark. Yeah. Someone said, I get my best ideas on the loo. Yeah. And uh, my favourite example of this is the guy who wrote the West Wing TV show or he wrote the Social Network uh, film, a guy called Aaron Sorkin. He said he was having his best ideas in the shower. And so he had a shower installed in the corner of his <laughs> office. He says he has eight to ten showers a day. Yeah, great, great. <laughs> I told that a cosmetics firm and they I say that we hope we've got a good moisturizing routine <laughs> <laughs> um, which is interesting isn't it we've, we've the, the, back to the Jack Ma thing we've over engineered work and we've over scheduled ourselves thinking that that's going to be going to produce insight and actually maybe we're making mistakes in the way we're well, wiring everything
0: yeah I've got I've got no problem with um with work my, my, my motto all my agencies, has always been um energy beats talent and um what I've always tended to hire is uh, hungry young northerners. They've always worked great in my creative department.
1: Because the energy, big talent thing is an interesting one. I was reading you talking about the culture at your agencies. Yeah. And you said anyone was allowed to work on any piece of work. Yeah. So effectively, once you've done your work, you're allowed to start working on other pieces. Yeah. Explain Because that sounds a bit sort of cutthroat dog-eat-dog. Explain how that looked and how that worked.
0: Cutthroat dog, eat dog. Right, hello.
1: uh, uh, What you
0: do is, I'm not making rules for the world. I'm not making rules for everybody else. I'm looking for a gap that I can occupy, I can own. You're always looking for a niche. You know, I'm I'm not a politician. I'm not making rules for everybody else. It's like if you take Ferguson. He's not making rules for the rest of football. He's looking how he can exploit the weaknesses in other teams in order to win. So... uh, The misunderstanding is everybody else gets up and pontificates about what everybody else ought to do. This isn't rules for everybody else. What I'll do is look at what everybody else is doing and do something different. Which is creative. You don't make rules for everybody else. Once everybody else is doing it, it's no good to me. Then what will happen is the best will win. Well, that's no good to me. The best winning is not creative. What's creative is how do I beat the best? How do I beat the fastest, the richest, the strongest? I've got to find a creative way to beat those guys. So, uh... Part of that was all other ad agencies were hiring the the best creatives and the most expensive creatives. And I thought, well, for the cost of those most expensive creatives, one of those, I can get half a dozen youngsters. And so for the cost of four or five of those, I can get 20 youngsters. And if they're northerners and they come down to London to make it, which these kids had, you've got no choice. You've got no distractions. You either make it here or you go back home. So they're perfect for me. And they, all they want is every time I give them a brief, it's like giving them a present because it's a chance to make it. And because I, I was trained in New York, I understand exactly that attitude. This isn't like England where you've got to be embarrassed about working hard and uh, work is a terrible imposition on us. Uh, this is work and you love work. That's why you're doing it. If you don't love what you're doing, do something else. But if you do love it, do it, you know. This is my work and my hobby. So how,
1: how did you facilitate them working on each other's stuff? Right. So what I
0: would do, what I always used to do when I was a junior, I used to hate the fact that I would only get given the junior briefs, trade ads and things like that, while the, head, the seniors would get given all the TV. So I used to wait till the seniors had gone over the pub and I used to go around their offices and steal their briefs, <laughs> work, on them over, work on them overnight, and then sell them to the account men before they got in in the morning. <laughs> Didn't make me a lot of friends, but I wasn't there to make friends. <laughs> I reckon, I, you know, I, I, I cut eight years off my career. I did, I did ten years' career in two years, and I thought, well, let's formalise that for these youngsters. So I'd have a load of white clean boards on the wall, and everybody would have their own board. And on it, in written in red, would be what you're working on, but it hasn't been bought yet. And written on it in black would be what's been bought and it's in production. So everybody could walk along and see, uh, and um, the deal was as a youngster once you've done your trade ads you can walk along and take any other work on there that hasn't been done yet so if the seniors haven't done their TV yet well you can have a go at it if you want and the only thing stopping you is whether or not you want to stay here at night or come in at the weekends or whatever it is and do it if you don't want to do it then don't grumble that your career's going slowly and up to the speed that you want to go you want to proceed at and I got that idea out of um, Dale Carnegie book uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People great book much traduced because of the name. It was written in about 1930. Uh, and the name, it was the first of those how-to books. And since then, a load of other books have been written. And consequently, that that book's not appreciated as much as it should. Still top ten bestseller,
1: even though this week.
0: It had a great story in there. Uh, I mean, the more broadly <coughs> you learn from every, everywhere else, you can apply those lessons. had a great story in there. When, doubt, when a guy called... A Scots guy, forget his name... Bought Bethlehem Steel And Bethlehem Steel was going bust in, This is in America Bethlehem Steel was going bust Because it was doing one smelting per shift One in the morning, one in the evening And this Scots guy bought it, bought it And uh, he walked around on the day shift And he said, uh, and because he was there They worked hard and to impress him So he said to the foreman How many smeltings did you do today? And they said two And he said, "Okay." grabbed a big lump of chalk and he wrote a massive great two on the ground where the night shift will walk in. And the night shift came in and they said, what's this? And the day shift said, we did two smeltings and uh, the the new owner wrote that on the floor. And the night shift thought, bastards, trying to make us look bad, right? So the night shift did three smeltings and they kicked that two off the ground and wrote a massive great three on the ground. And the day shift came in and went, Bastards, what are you doing? And he was getting them between four and five smeltings every shift without firing a single person, without giving anybody a raise, because people were now competing like it was sports. People love to compete. That's why when you look at the Petronas Towers in Kuala Lumpur, they got built under budget and under schedule because they put an American team on the job. The Petronas Towers and... Instead of putting one team to build both, they put two separate teams, one on each, and the American teams are each desperate to beat each other because they like competition and work is fun. Work is a game, and, and, and work doesn't have to be the, Europe, you know, the European way we remember the feudal times of slave master and a whip. Work can be fun. This is I'm, I'm going to this is a game, and I'm going to win.
1: So, so there was something that you said along the way there which I think is a good entry point to, to a bit more discussion, which you said that, you know, if everyone else is doing one thing and you're doing something else, that's your advantage. And I, I think we can often find ourselves thinking all the good ideas have been taken, all the innovation has been done. But yet now, you know, if, if we look, I, I find it fascinating, if we look at any company, you know, most, most companies now are run on people having 20 hours a week meetings, people using email all the time. I met someone yesterday that said we don't use email in our company. And I thought, wow, the first time I've heard something yeah. that feels different—that someone's deliberately wiring their company up in a different way—I
0: think things like that are great. All I would say is, I, I, I don't think blanket uh, "here's ten ways to be creative" um, um, stop using email, have bean bags, less hot desk, blah 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 blah. You know, that's that's just stuff. That's not creative anything you can can make ten rules of that you give to anybody then that's not creative the creative is what are the other people doing and I'm not going to do that I'm going to do something different
1: so I really liked in the book that we gave everyone I really liked the fact that quite often you said that a creative idea was born out of a couple of problems coming together so there was a couple of examples the prisoners and the dogs I thought was a, a really interesting example of two problems that sort of solved each other do you want to talk through that?
0: Yeah, yeah, always. If you're really smart, you, 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 you put, you've got a problem, you put it together with another problem, and usually that makes a plus. So that, they had the problem of all these recidivist prisoners in the States, and they couldn't get to them, uh, hardcore, violent criminals. They didn't know how to get them to change their ways. And they also had all these dogs that were about to be put down because uh, they, uh, people wouldn't adopt them. And what they did is they said to the prisoners, uh, each of the prisoners, they give them a dog for 10 weeks and say, if you can change this dog's behaviour, it will get adopted. And they would give the prisoner the dog in their cell to look after for 10 weeks And the prisoner would transfer, saving that, changing that dog's behavior to save that dog's life and teaching that dog why it needed to behave, why it needed to stop growling, why it needed to act nicely, why it needed to sit down and he'd clean it and he'd wash it and he'd look after it and he'd get his teeth and his nails done. And usually, after 10 weeks, the dog was a changed animal. And the dog will get adopted. And amazingly, the prisoner was a changed person too because suddenly the prisoner had seen why obeying the rules actually worked. In, making, in saving the dog's life, the prisoner had seen how, cha- how obeying the rules actually paid dividends and how it could work. And you put two minuses together and you get a plus. So,
1: so is the secret of creativity then us spending more time trying to find those problems? If, if the creativity comes from really getting to the heart of a problem and then letting letting your mind wander of trying to think of the the most expansive solution to that. Is it about defining the problems first?
0: Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, the problem is way more important than the solution. Uh, My art school was um, a Bauhaus art school uh, in New York, and um, Bauhaus, everybody's heard of it, and everybody knows the line form follows function, and they parrot it out, but they don't think of it. Form follows function. So function comes first. If you get the function wrong, well, how most people approach it is with an answer, with a form. And they, and, and, but form follows function. They, don't, they never define the function. So what you end up with is you go around most art galleries and most of that isn't very creative. That's just style. Edward De Bono says um, there are lots of people calling themselves creative who are mere stylists. What style is, is what you see in art galleries. It's not creative. There's no real thinking there. There's nothing unusual or different. You see beautiful chairs, absolutely lovely beautiful chairs, uh, but they're really uncomfortable to sit on. Well, usually, Loaf, it's not a fucking chair. (laughs) (laughs) That's function follows form. You've got this beautiful object. If you can't sit on it, it's not a chair. The first job is get a chair. Now, when you've done that, we'd like to make it beautiful, yes, but if you can't sit on it, it's not a chair. Einstein said, if I had an hour to save the world, the world was about to end and I had an hour to save it, I'd spend 50 minutes on the problem and 10 minutes on the solution. Because if I got the problem right, the solution would be easy. But if I didn't get the problem right, there would be no solution. The, 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 by breaking down the, solution, the problem, you will come to a different solution that gets upstream of where you were. The example, silly old example we always use is two, uh, two um, explorers going through the jungle and they hear a tiger roar and uh, they hear a the tiger running towards them and one explorer gets down and starts putting on a pair of running shoes and the other explorer says, uh, you're crazy, you'll never outrun a tiger and he says I don't need to outrun a tiger, I just need to outrun you <laughs> <laughs> you, you won't solve a problem at the level you create it you need to get above the level you created it and solve a different problem and then this problem disappears.
1: I, I wonder if that's sort of connected to what the, the Jack Ma thing as well, that yeah. you know that if you if you're focused on solutions, 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 then you get immediately into here's our solution. Yeah. and the Jack Ma thing seems to be let's try and teach people because that's exactly what the Ken Robinson talk is isn't it Ken Robinson talk says that if you look um, if you look at divergent thinking so I think they give paper clips to yeah. they, they, they ask people to come up with inventive use of paper clips and it might be a fishing hook it might be holding paper it might be sort of stack them up into a, a tower yeah. and you're, you're invited to do as many and the kids of the age of six or seven produce more examples of divergent thinking than adults. And so, that, you know, what Ken Robinson says is that you're effectively teaching creativity out of kids. And Jack Ma seems to be saying the same. And what you seem to be saying there is that actually that freshness of thinking trying to identify a problem rather than jumping straight to the solution.
0: Yeah. So, so what Bill Birnbeck, who's one of the greatest, greatest advertising person ever, he said... Principles endure, formulas don't. If we learn principles, that's what we should be studying. Don't learn formulas. When you learn formulas, you cannot possibly be creative. That's for for machines. Like like they used to say for IBM, machines should work, people should think. uh, So principles, if you study principles, so you can't teach formulas. Having saying to everybody we're not having any E is a formula saying we're having beanbags and we're having open plan offices is a formula that's not a principle of creativity like, you can't study that, principle is we're going to do something new, something you haven't seen before well then obviously I can't show you that can I, it can't be a formula for that so what I used to do at my agency is make sure people are exposed to tons and tons of creativity. So I'd take them to the cinema, I'd bring in loads of books and make sure everybody worked. Uh, I'd, I'd take them to talks, I'd get in speakers like Edward de Bono. Every Friday afternoon, we'd have a creativity session where each week someone would be nominated to bring in the most creative thing they could think of and talk about it, and they'd have to nominate a different person. Yeah. Maybe that worked, maybe it didn't, and then we'd find another thing to get But the constant focus on different ways of opening up creativity, not closing it down to a formula, but opening it up to new questions all the time and arguing about it and getting the conversation going. So that all week the guy who's got to do the talk on Friday will be talking about the water cooler or the coffee machine to people saying, what am I going to do on Friday about this creativity thing? you have any ideas? And other people are having to think about it or what they're going to do for the creativity thing on Friday. So the discussion in the company becomes to be more about what is creativity, and then in the argument on Friday, everybody asks when we meet up. People are saying, "Well, that's not very creative." I don't see why the other guy has not If my is creative, and we've got a conversation going about what creativity is, and you've got the whole question in the office about what creativity is, rather than I want you all to wear red ties on Friday because that will make us creative. You know.
1: More of Dave after the break. now back to my discussion with dave i was really interested when i was going through all your stuff that you often you see that you know if people are struggling with creativity you often see it as a reductive process rather than an additive one right so sort of you say in this book you talk about the the mosquito bomber hmm. and how it became sort of best in its field mm-hmm. by them mm-hmm. by having a reductive process yeah. of thinking rather than do i tell that story yeah or?
0: yeah well well in world war Two the um I love to look from all over. I like to look at football, I like to look at business. Military is a really good place to look because obviously that's a very heightened, stressful situation where you need to get creative. And Churchill had said, we don't have as much as, well, you know, in the the years, uh, Churchill said, we don't have as much as as the other side. uh, So we need corkscrew thinkers. We don't need straight line thinkers. And so part of that would be the RAF and the uh, American Air Force had big four-engine bombers. And these four-engine bombers each had crews of 11 or 12 or 13 men to defend themselves from German fighters. And you'd have more and more guns on these bombers. They'd load more and more and more guns and more and more armor on these bombers, which made them slower and slower and slower and slower. And they were getting shot down and guys were dying and everything like that. And Jeffrey de Havilland, said, I think I'm gonna look at this the other way. He stripped all the gun, he only put two two engines on the bomber to make it lighter. And because he couldn't find any metal, he made the bomber out of wood. And he got Parker Knoll, the furniture manufacturers, to make the bombers out of wood. It was called the Mosquito, and it was absolutely light. And he only had two engines, two Spitfire engines, one on each wing. Not a gun on the plane, and it was faster than any fighter, and it could carry as much as a bomber, but the fighters couldn't catch it. And so it didn't get shot down. And the bomber crews, and he only had a crew or two, and the bomber crews loved it because they had a much higher survival rate in this unarmed wooden two-seater than they did on this really heavily armed and gunned four-engines bombers. And so they... Built Mosquitoes, it was one of the best, most successful planes of all. By reduction and reduction and reduction and reduction and reduction. And that's what a brief and thinking is. David Ogilvy said, strategy is sacrifice. When you're putting a brief together, you don't load more and more and more and more and more stuff into it. You reduce it and you reduce it and you reduce it. If you're talking to ordinary people, they haven't got time for it. The ordinary person gets 2,000 advertising messages a day haven't got time to Mickey Mouse around with all the details. You better be really simple and it better be really evocative and it better be really different, it better be really powerful. So you better reduce what you're saying down and down and down and down and down and down until you've got the absolute grain. Like they make a pot, an oyster gets made from one grain of sand which gets wrapped around them, and then the mother of pearl gets wrapped around and around that, you get an oyster. That's how it works. You reduce it down and down and down and down to one grain of sand, then you wrap the pearl around it. But the reduction is crucial for the strategy department.
1: Does it mean that creativity is far more solitary than committee-based? Because the, the way that you've just described, described there, I was thinking of all the times that a good idea has been encumbered by someone says, yeah, but can you just add this? Can you just add this on? Can you just do this? And, and I wonder if, in its essence, we sort of need to trust people by, by giving more faith to creative people rather than by allowing committees to intervene.
0: Well, you know, the one thing, the one thing that hit me about creative is it ain't who says it it's who spots it everyone thinks to be creative you have to be the guy that wrote it and what I've learned is no absolutely the opposite you have to be the guy who spots it sometimes it would come out of my, I'd be sitting with John Webster who's the best there ever was and uh, I'd be talking and we'd be talking about what we were and John would say hey back up there what you said there that was brilliant and I'd say what what did I say and John would say, that thing you said about so and so and so and so. And I'd go down as the writer and I'd be an award-winning writer and I didn't even feel what I said. John had spotted it. And the guy who's listening is capable of spotting it. The guy who says it often isn't. But everybody has to have the ownership of it by thinking, if I didn't say it, then I'm, I'm, I'm not the owner of this creativity. And actually, the real creativity comes from spotting it. So whatever situation you need to be in, and it, and it changes every time, I used to sit on the tube on the circle line when it went round and round and just look at the people opposite me and think how do I talk her into this? Or I used to go to the supermarket and watch the people buying it. Think, "How do I, talk to her? I used to stand in the pub and watch the people or just anything or go, go, go and get drunk or go to the cinema whatever I need to do to shake my brain out of a rut and it, it'll be different every time because it's creative. It will be different. Sometimes idea might pop up in the committee idea might pop up on my own I find showers are really good. You get a lot of good ideas in the shower. I've got one place at home I like to sit. My wife, being Chinese, believes in Feng Shui. So I've got one place there I like to sit that's really good. Uh, you'll find all those things. What you have
1: to do is keep an open mind. But let's add those two things up. Because we, you started off by saying you're really unhappy with the state of modern creativity yeah. or that you, you weren't filled with optimism. And yet, you know, we're more evolved, we've developed. So why are these two things not connected? Why, why is. You know, knowing all of the sum total of the knowledge that you said here, why are people not being as creative and inventive now? Are are we doing what you you said the schooling system of of other countries does, schooling people into obedience? And and if so, how do you advise the people in this room to to sort of cultivate disobedience?
0: Well, disobedience and going back to basics. The problem is there are too many answers, so you haven't got time for any questions. The problem is that all you've got is a menu, uh, of what, what you know, I don't even know all the different technological terms because I stay away from them because it's it just gets in the way. The, but it's like someone you know, you don't go and sit down and think, What do I eat now? Someone comes over to you with the menu and says, What would you like to choose? And that's how every problem is now is your menu of uh, all your different media choices. Quick, hurry up, I've got four other things happening. Choose one, quick, there you go, that's out the door. And um, with programmatic and automatic and and, and and all the other things, you just... Uh, I stay away from it, because there isn't time to think with those guys, they're, and they're technicians, they call themselves creative, but they're just technicians. Uh, and... You... You, you aren't going to get any... There isn't even a possibility... They don't even want a different answer, because a different answer's scary. They want an answer from the allowed list. And... <coughs> You know better than me what the allowed list is, and you haven't got time to think of anything different. So, And the allowed list is so huge, you haven't got time to go off-piste.
1: But would you advise people then at the, the, at the outset before they sit down to start thinking of execution, that they spend more time, you know, back to your 90% of the time or, or 50, 50 minutes in the hour, thinking of the problem is that where well, you think I can't, falling down?
0: I can't tell you formula that's why I love that Steve Jobs quote you decide for yourself if you're in the navy or you're a pirate and if you're in the navy and you want to do it properly and you want to get good marks and you want to pay your mortgage and you want to get get on well at work and earn money and just do that then that's fine just don't call yourself creative if you want to be if, if you are creative you won't need me to tell you you're gonna you're gonna get in trouble you're gonna get fired sometimes you're gonna get expelled from school uh People aren't necessarily going to like what you do and sometimes you're going to hit that ball out of the park. Sometimes it's going to be amazing and people are going to say, Why'd you do that? You're so great. Nobody else could see that. Nobody else could see. You're going to see things other people couldn't see. And Bill Birnback said, if you stand for something, you'll find some people for you and some people against you. If you stand for nothing, you'll find nobody for you and nobody against you. So if you don't want anybody to dislike you, don't stand for anything don 't just be like everybody else. have it like a regular old office job, like you could have worked in a bank don 't call yourself creative. that will just confuse you and make you unhappy. Just carry on doing your job like an algorithm and just enjoy the rest of your life. Wait till it 's time to retire and you can start living <laughs> but, uh,
1: the audience uh, you've got here, <laughs> here's possible uh, the audience you've got here, I thought Quentin crisps. Uh, take on the difference between manners and, and etiquette was instructive. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah. just largely because it's sort of, you know, a lot of people here might find themselves using jargon or find themselves in sort of quite esoteric language and I thought his take on the difference between, I guess, a Brit who went to New York and he said there was a difference between etiquette and language. Yeah. I thought that was relevant to, to well, this.
0: Well, yeah, there, there is that. There's, oh, um, there's another thing Americans said which is, uh, my wasn't American, it was Einstein. it's always credited to Einstein. He said, if you can't explain it to an 11-year-old, you haven't really understood it. Now, I don't think most of the people I, I, I deal with couldn't explain what they do to an 11-year-old. They couldn't explain it in really technical language because that's all they do. But that takes you further and further away from any thinking. Now you're just reacting like an algorithm. Quentin Crisp... I used to uh, draw him, I didn't notice him at the time but when I was about 16 in East Ham I used to go to life class at East Ham Tech on a Saturday morning uh, and they had this naked model that was really grumpy uh, with a big poop blonde bouffant, front uh, purple bouffant, and um, uh, really grumpy and <coughs> I was only 16 at the time I didn't know and he had a great big tummy and skinny legs and breasts and a posing pouch but years later, I found out it was Quentin Crisp. <laughs> but, and and he, he, did, he did male modelling because it was the uh, easiest way to get money without work. And um, But anyway, the, um, he went to New York and he said he'd learned the difference between Bricks and Americans was the difference between politeness and manners. And Bricks had manners, but Americans had politeness. Or the other way around. Americans had manners and Brits had politeness. But either way what it was was and it's the same with language is brits use manners to exclude people and americans use it to include people so brits when you go to their house good manners or politeness is supposed to be you've got to know which fork to pick up uh, otherwise you feel like an outsider and everybody looks at you and you're embarrassed it's exclusive Whereas what Americans would do is take all the forks off the table except one and say, yeah, we don't need them, have the one you want. In fact, we don't even need a knife, just have a fork. Mm-hmm. Much more inclusive. And so Americans will be much more like that with language. They'll reduce it to monosyllables. They'll, so one of my favourite things in the war was how Churchill got the lease-lend programme through Congress in the States uh, was um, Roosevelt. Roosevelt was trying to get the lease-lend program through, which was how America would give us weapons without actually joining in on our side. Still stay neutral, but give us weapons. And Americans didn't want to approve that at all. Uh, And this is a very complicated, big fat wedge of paper, big fat folder of paper to explain it. And all Roosevelt did is he stood up to Congress and he said, look, when your neighbor's house is on fire, you don't refuse to lend him your hosepipe. And that was, he'd reduced a quarter of an inch thick document to a sentence that nobody could argue with. And the lease lend program went through and we straight away got 50 destroyers and all the tanks we needed for North Africa. And well before America came into the war. Just by that line, when your neighbour's house is on fire, you don't refuse to lend him your hosepipe. That's reducing all of that complicated language to what Bill Birnbach calls simple, timeless human truths—things that we can all understand. Monosyllables, language we all speak. So in. the power of reduction against power, of sort of definitely, communication, definitely. is about saying less. Definitely, definitely, we talk like human beings. Yeah,
1: yeah. We're running out, almost running out of time. I just want to. Um, because it's my favourite story ever I just want to give you this copy of The Exorcist yeah. and uh, I wonder if you could tell us that story
0: well it's, I, don't, I don't know why it just seemed quite ordinary but, but in the creative department everybody everybody's all creative and the thing about creatives, real creatives is they're all rebels and rejects that's what creatives are, rebels and rejects and um, so in the department you've got to follow that and um, we used to have this going back to the 70s now at BMP Uh, we all used to read the same book at the time so we could talk about it so in one week uh, we were all reading The Exorcist and uh, one of the guys, the head of TV used to live in Brighton and he used to um, commute in from Brighton every day and uh, he said to us, he said that book is vile it's foul, it's evil he said it's the most evil book in the world he said I couldn't even finish it, he said, it's so evil. He said, at the weekend, I went to the end of Brighton Pier and threw it as far as I could. He said, so, so, I, thought, well, listen. so I went down to the bookshop and I bought a copy of The Exorcist. I went in the bathroom and I ran it under the tap and I left it in his drawer. <laughs>
1: He, know, he still doesn't know how
0: to It's <laughs> it 30 years ago, he still
1: doesn't know how to I think the fascinating thing is that, you, you know, it, it, from the perspective of starting and saying you're pessimistic about the, like, the state of modern things, actually you've given some really clear guidance. You know, if we want to be creative, we've got to be sort of troublemakers, we've got to be sort of, we've got to be the pirates rather than the navy.
0: And you mustn't look for agreement. You've got to, you've got, you've got to be the kind of person that it's okay for you. That was what was great for me about going to New York. America is a country founded by rebels and rejects. And, and, and it was great for me. when I was, I was there from 19 to about 23 or 24, a formative period in my life. And what you learn is the thing that stops you is your own worrying about what other people think of you. And if you do that, you can't be creative because you can't be a pirate because you, you're too worried about being in the Navy and doing what, doing what people will allow you to do. You've got to enjoy getting into trouble... And we used to love that, it meant we'd get on the front page of the sun. We did LWT, we did what you now call out of home, which uh, being analogue I still call posters. We did LWT and we did a poster a week, 70 posters one, one, one day, one a week. And we used to do them and the, the job was, because uh, it was one a week, to get it posted on the 48 sheets. Get it, posted if anyone in here knows what a 48 sheet is, get it, do it with big ones. <laughs> and and, and um, uh, we'd do it on a. get it printed over the weekend, get it up so for Monday morning everybody would see it. Uh, everybody would be outraged, everybody would complain, it would be all over the papers. They'd force us to take it down by Wednesday, we'd drag our feet, probably get them all taken down by Thursday or Friday, uh, and then we'd have the next weekend's one up again. We'd have all that free press coverage about it. All that controversy in the papers and everywhere about these papers, posters being out. We get five times what we were paying for, the media we were paying for. Um, instead of which, what you do nowadays is is pull it down, issue a huge apology and don't run any more posters. <clears> That's <throat> like, so it's not, you know, the whole atmosphere is the opposite of creative. The whole atmosphere is political correctness has killed creativity. Anyone who's dumb enough to go along with, with, with that uh you, read, you, you go on YouTube and, um, and type in Stephen Fry and political correctness or John Cleese and political correctness and just hear how it's killing comedy, how it's killing everything, how fear of, of what you can and can't say is killing everything. And just... But if, you, if you're a sort of person that still likes to get into trouble and still thinks that's fun, then that's, that's creative, yeah.
1: And you're saying there's as much opportunity as ever before. Dave, we're out of time... Yeah. People can follow you on Twitter. You're a very good follow on Twitter, (laughs) as well as your blogs. I'm thrilled that you joined us here today. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. David. Amazing. I love that story. That story alone was worth the ticket price. So, thank you. Thank you for listening. Some good episodes coming up over the next few weeks. The Best way to stay connected to the podcast is to either subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a review while you're there or to subscribe to the new work now mailing and that's going out every two weeks on a Sunday. Always look forward to hearing from you. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm Bruce Daisley. See you next time.
2: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.